talking about precipitation. I'm talking Father God, He gave Jesus the nations, and He's ruling now, even over pagans. One day He's coming back. You just gotta have patience. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. Hey, what's up, guys? Welcome to that Post Mill Podcast, where it's 80 degrees and sunny in Minnesota, and that pretty much proves that Post Mill right there. How's everybody doing today? Doing great. Splendid. Excellent. Yeah, it looks like it's been uh, some nice weather around the states. Everyone's feeling good, feeling ready to go outside. I don't know how anyone could be that dispy right now. They must be all converting to to post mill because it's just everything's going great. Yeah. <laughs> there are a couple new voices with us today. Um, Adam and John are currently not with us, but we also have with us uh, Shani Adeyemi. Did I say that right? Uh, more or less. Will you pronounce it for me? You said the first name wrong. It's Seni. No, it, it's Shani. <laughs> no, please. <laughs> Shani. Adeyemi. Adeyemi. Yeah. Okay. And that is Nigerian? That's correct. Nigerian, which is pretty cool. Shani is actually one of the guys that uh, was uh, fixing to be a part of Dat Postmail from the beginning, but due to his busy school schedule, he hasn't been able to join us on a regular basis, but he is definitely one of the DAT Postmail team. We also have with us a guest today, Martin Selbredi from Calcedon. Martin, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, basically, uh, I'm one of those DAT Postmail guys from a long time ago, uh, more than a third of a century being a post-millennialist. And that's what drew me to Chalcedon's work, because it was actively promoting uh, that theology uh, in a rigorous uh, academic, scholarly, and biblical way. Uh, so I started as a research associate with them in about 1981 and uh, rose to become the vice president. Uh, those are unpaid positions, I hasten to add, um, because, uh, like I mentioned in our uh, pre-brief, uh, I do it because I believe in the message. I, I don't mind uh, dedicating time to the truth of Christ and his victory. Great. Very cool. And uh, so what do you do for for a living then? I'm a software engineer at the current time in Austin, Texas. Very cool. So that's uh, definitely makes you smarter than me. <laughs> Shani, are you fixing, are you are you aiming to be a software engineer or what, what is your Yes, uh, that is that exactly what I'm, I'm aiming to do. So Very cool. So you and Martin should get along swimmingly. And mm -hmm. Dustin, you, you work in software, or at least uh, with those sorts of things in some fashion. I do work with software. I use them. I don't make them. <laughs> so I'm, I'm in your boat then, Dustin. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we're just, we're just going to jump two feet first straight into this so that we can get to the meat of, uh, of why we've brought Martin onto the show today. Martin, uh, as part of Chalcedon... Um, has written many essays, articles that have been published in different journals and stuff like that with Cal, uh, Calcedon um, that have been really helpful to me, particularly in areas of postmillennialism and theonomy. So I just wanted to uh, to get into the meat of the postmill discussion. Could you tell us, Martin, from your perspective, what is what is the best way to summarize what postmillennialism is to you? Well, to me, it's about the victory of Christ, pure and simple, the extent of it. And uh, lots of folks will talk about that, but they'll have actually have repackaged and recoded that to mean something very different than what the scriptures are describing. 
many people will say that they're being very literal with the scriptures. And when we dig a little bit deeper, we find, no, they're actually evading and trying to elude what the scriptures are telling them. And so what I've been working on primarily is an exegetical basis for the post-millennial position. Uh, and actually, technically, I would agree with uh, Warfield, the great Princeton seminarian, uh, died in 1921, who said post-millennialism is probably not even a good choice of term because he did not believe, and I think he's right, that the millennium of Revelation 20 is properly being understood. And so he preferred a different term, which uh, I've mentioned many times, known as eschatological universalism, which is to say that the Great Commission will one day be fulfilled. Really, it's not a mediocre commission, it's a Great Commission, and what makes it great is the extent to which it's finally going to roll over the earth as the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon all flesh. And that's what we're talking about here. I always hasten to add that we're not talking about heretical universalism, which talks about salvation for Hitler and Genghis Khan and what have you. Uh, we're talking about eschatological, merely that the men then living at the end of the church age, uh, that final generation is saved. The, there is no more gospel to preach just the way the new covenant promises. It says, no man shall need to teach his neighbors, saying, no to the Lord, for they shall all know the Lord from the least to the greatest. There is an end to the evangelistic process because there's no one left to evangelize. The entire world has been brought under the dominion of Christ, who reigns from heaven over all at that point. And then the consummation will occur, but not prior to that point. Okay, and that's actually the view that I have come to hold recently, thanks to your work and uh, you've, your talk on apologia, your talk at... Um, I'm not going to remember the name of the conference that was in Texas, I believe, mm -hmm. sometime in the last year or so. And then um, your essay that you wrote in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, I think it is volume 15. Yes. Yes. And um, and so that's that's the view that I've come to hold. And it, it took me a while to work through the um, the final battle that is seen in Revelation 20. And that's a, that's a thing that that te that most people who claim postmillennialism would agree with amillennials on at least in in the fact that it's going to happen in the future how do you exegetically deal with that issue well the scholar the scholarship for this uh, view eschatological universalism of course has to deal with that passage in revelation 20 and i think what we do and this was set in motion in the late 19th century by people like Milligan and Deusterdijk, and then finally Warfield, is we say, look, there's this little season sitting here in this passage of Revelation. What's the best way to interpret that little season? Uh, miracle of miracles, these men decided to look back through the book of Revelation and say, has John used this term before? Uh, and in point of fact, he's used it twice, once exactly, and then a second time with the concept with slightly different wording. He uses this idea of a little season in Revelation 6.11, and then uh, a brief season, if you will, or a short time in Revelation 12.12. So what these scholars have done is say, let's take St. John at his word that this is the same idea in all these locations. That makes a lot of sense, particularly with the passage in Revelation 6, because we see souls, disembodied souls of those who've been beheaded for Christ under the altar. And then they're told to wait 
a little season. The word's a microchronon in the Greek. What do we see in Revelation 20? I saw the souls of them seated on thrones. And then there's a little season pitted against those guys. And then the whole passage in Revelation 12 about Satan being cast out of heaven onto the earth, being very wrathful because he knows he has only a short time, a little season. So basically, uh, William, William Milligan made it, put it this way, and I thought it was a very clever way. He says, people, uh, Christians, are seeking in the millennium what is actually to be found in the little season. The little season is talking about life on earth. The millennium is talking about disembodied souls. You get to the millennium one way when you pass uh, over the line to death and are received by Christ into his bosom. That's how you get into the millennium. No living person who's still breathing here gets into any millennium in Scripture. So as Warfield says, there's two symbols here. There's a symbol of a thousand years and a symbol of a little season. And it's John's way of reproducing the thought that St. Paul talks about, where he says, I don't consider the current troubles worthy to be compared to the exceeding weight of glory to come. He's contrasting a short little season of trouble, if you will, with an exceeding weight of glory to come, something light, something extremely heavy, a little season, a thousand years, if you will. Uh, and he's making this comparison. And what's to make it to come? Because he's going to pass into the presence of the Lord when uh, he faces the sword of the executioner under Caesar. And that's how he passes into the exceeding weight of glory to come. And that's what the millennium is really about. It's actually the saints safe-penned in paradise, to use Warfield's phrase. Uh, and so that means that these realities in Revelation 20 are time symbols. They're symbols not of a, that, are, don't, that only run consecutively because they are time symbols. But from our point of view, they run concurrently. We live in the little season. And the little season is the period of time during which God's fire is, in fact, you know, pouring out upon those who are trying to attack the saints. Is that a radical idea that God's fire is pouring out from heaven right now? No, because we see it in Romans 1, 17 and 18. Paul says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. He posits that as a current reality, that God's wrath is pouring down continually upon the earth. In the throne vision of Daniel 7, we see a, a stream of fire coming down out of the throne of God onto the earth. I make a comment in that journal article that you referred to that there's a translation of the original Hebrew in Second Chronicles 34. We read in the English, Great is the wrath of the Lord that's poured out upon us. But the original Hebrew says, Great is the glowing fire of the Lord that's being poured out upon us. God's wrath in providential action is what is being described there. And it ultimately has its effect on the world. Because you're going to be baptized with fire of the Holy Ghost. That's pretty much the position that John the Baptist took in Matthew 3, 11 and 12. And that's what we're talking about there. So it's not as if we have a, a long period of peace, and then all of a sudden Satan is released and everything goes to hell in a handbasket, almost literally. Uh, and that means we have to rethink this whole notion of what it means to bind Satan. In the version that Warfield and Milliken are talking about, the binding of Satan simply means he's thrown out of heaven. He can no longer hassle saints in heaven. He was bugging God about Job in the first chapter of Job. He's accusing Job. Look at Zechariah 3, verses 1 and 2. There's Satan standing next to Joshua the high priest to accuse him and slander him. 
This no longer occurs because in Revelation 12, Satan is thrown out of heaven. And he can only uh, walk on the earth, to and fro and left and right, if you will, across the breadth of the earth. And that's the only place that Satan is allowed after Christ has uh, dispossessed him of any right or place to be in heaven. So the saints who go to heaven don't have to deal with Satan anymore. Even though Joshua, uh, the pr prince, uh, priest Joshua, did have to deal with him, because he was standing right there to attack him right in front of God's throne. No longer true. You are safe in heaven from Satan. He is sealed away from you. And as Warfield said, it, the image is showing what looks as if it's happening to Satan. He said, but really it happens to the saints. They're delivered from Satan's attack. That would mean that on that hypothesis, that Satan currently is unbound here on earth. Now think about this, and I make this point in the article. Most post-mills who believe that there's going to be a final apostasy, as they believe is taught in Revelation 27, 8, and 9, they say Satan's currently bound. Therefore, the gospel can go forth. They usually make that connection. The gospel can go forth unimpeded because Satan is bound. But when Satan is loose, the gospel falls on hard times. Now that means in their model, and it is a post-millennial model, but it's a problematic one because it doesn't deal with the data very well. It ignores all the cross-references we talked about in chapter 6 and 12. In that model, Christ cannot convert the world even though Satan was bound and had his hands behind, tied behind his back. In Warfield's model of post-millennialism, Christ conquers the entire world to the last man standing even though Satan is, bound, uh, is unbound. You see the point? In one case, Christ defeats Satan, and Satan can have no excuse and say it wasn't fair. In the other, we have every advantage, apparently, allegedly, to have Christ win, and he doesn't win. We are back into an amillennial notion, and that's why Lorraine Bettner, one of the, probably the most pronounced postmillennial scholars of the middle of the 20th century, said, you know, when you adopt the, um, an idea of a final apostasy in Revelation, your postmillennialism has no capstone. There is no, uh, the final point is a gigantic war, a war, by the way, that conflicts with Isaiah 2 4. Because Isaiah, Isaiah 2 4 tells us that there will be a permanent cessation of war, right? Of the increase of peace in this government, there should be no end. Well, I have news for everybody. Revelation 20, verse 7, 8, 9 taken the way most people understand it, is completely contradictory to Isaiah 2.4. It's Isaiah 9.7. To Psalm 72, which says, Abundance of peace shall endure till the moon be no more. I mean, I can just go from passage to passage and say, how can these things be true when history ends with the greatest war of all time, with uh, the enemy encompassing the breadth of the entire world? But if you look at it the way that Warfield and Milligan are saying, says, look at the parallel passages, folks. Study this see that these are all connected together, these are talking about the same reality, then it makes sense. You're living in the little season, and the little season is the season during which God's fire pours out until there's no evil people left to pour down. It's purging the world, if you will. After all, this whole book of Revelation begins with Christ's statement several times, including 321, that the keys of heaven and Hades and death are in his hands. He controls it. He's in charge. And that's why it makes sense. So let me say one more thing, but I'll let you guys loose on me. If it's true that, I, that uh, in Revelation 20, that the binding of Satan means that the gospel can now be successful, that means the determining uh, factor in the gospel's success is in the created order. 
It's not in the Creator anymore. You're saying Satanology determines soteriology. Salvation comes because Satan is bound. Versus saying uh, salvation comes because the Holy Spirit is released. See, we have to then retract from that position saying, wait a minute, if we're saying that Satan's binding is what allows people to be saved, that's Arminianism. That means that the factor that's decisive is something that was created. It's not God's electing decree at all. It's something else. It's something in the created order. And that's the essence of Arminianism. Uh, it's really hard to reconcile an Arminian concept and be a post-mill at the same time. Dr. Gary North says, you know, Arminian post-mills, if such there be, because he doesn't think there can be. It's not consistent. The only way you can have confidence in the salvation of the entire world is because the result is in God's fist and cannot be extracted or, or otherwise deflected, can't stay his hand. So I think we have to look at the notion that the idea that uh, Revelation 20 is talking about a binding of Satan that allows the gospel to be unimpeded and not deceive nations anymore, that's an Arminian idea. It does not belong in a Calvinist eschatology. It is an alien notion, and it conflicts with the basic ideas that the Bible sets forth. Uh, obviously, I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist, as is Warfield and others, uh, so we're not apologetic about it, but we call our fellow Calvinists to count, saying, we should take a look at this idea because at the root, we're actually undermining our own Calvinistic position when we say, you know, salvation is totally of God. Not in your model of Revelation 20, it's not. It's all of Satan because whether Satan has got a chain on him or not, that determines the factor. And that's, that's to be polite, no, not so polite, I guess. That's crazy talk. We should not attribute to Satan that kind of power over the gospel's success. It makes no sense to me. The gospel succeeds because God sends his word where he wills, and it does not return to him void. All right? That's Isaiah 45, 22, 23, where God commands the entire world to be saved. Be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for the Lord, there is none else. Uh, sworn by myself, the words got out of my mouth, and shall not return unto me void, that every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. So God affirms an oath that this thing happens, and there's no way that a created creature like Satan is going to get in the way. It's just impossible, because salvation, the engine of salvation, is God's election. And God simply elects more and more of every subsequent generation. And this actually explains that pesky parable of the wheat and tares, too, which we might discuss a little bit later if you guys are interested. Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's actually, uh, that is the next direction we're going for sure. Uh, but before we get there, does uh, any of you guys have any questions for Martin? Yeah, I do. All right, so I'm looking at the text of Revelation 20, and I'll just go ahead and read it. I'll read the first three verses. Uh, then I saw, this is the ESV, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut shut it and seal it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. What's, uh, what's hard for me up on your um, explanation here is the word after. It, it seems to me that Revelation 20 uh, is describing sequential events. But Satan is bound for a thousand years and then he's released for a little while. Uh, so could you explain that to me a little sure, bit more? Sure. It's what Warfield calls the idea of exteriority. If you're going to use time symbols, Satan is not bound at the beginning of this period, right? Because he has to be taken and chained. So he starts off unbound. He ends up unbound at the other end. So in the middle are the thousand years. So as Warfield says, when you're using time symbols, 
which is the extreme form of prophetic language, you have to set them up sequentially in order to create the idea of what is interior and outside. Inside the thousand years, everything is safe. Uh, the saints are protected. They rule on thrones with Christ. It's the fulfillment of Revelation 3.21 when he says, Those two overcome, I'll give with them to sit with me in my throne. The throne of Revelation 3.21 becomes the plural thrown on, the multiple thrones of Revelation 20. And you sit in these thrones when you are a disembodied spirit. That's the other problem here, of course, is that the notion that we're talking about anything other than disembodied spirits is a problem. Because he says, And I saw the souls of them... You know, of them, that prepositional phrase means we're talking about disembodied souls. And there are only souls in the thousand years. There are no living human beings in the thousand years. Uh, they've gone to be with the Lord, and they occupy that same space, if you will, of Revelation 6, 9. They have the white linen robes that are given to them, and they're told to wait the little season, during which time their brethren must finish their course. They're, if you look at the translation of Revelation 6, and I'm bringing you back there because we're seeing the same word, microchronon, that little season that's being described here in Revelation 23 and then later in 27, that concept is set forth early in the book of Revelation at the sixth chapter. If we ignore it, and we ignore Revelation 12, then we say, okay, now we're going to use the analogy of Scripture, folks, as good exegetes. No, we're not. We can't really get there if we're ignoring the parallel passages. And the parallel passages explain a lot to us that we should take to heart. So, yes, it looks like before and after because the symbol requires it, but the thing symbolized does not require it. We have to be very careful with what symbols mean, for example. I'll give you a, a case in point. We have a picture of locusts with a king over them in the book of Revelation, do we not? Even gives them the name, right? Apollyon, Abaddon. So there's your king of the locusts. But in Revelation, in Proverbs 30, I think it's verse 21, 27, the scripture says the locusts have no king. So if the scripture cannot be broken, then there's something about Revelation and the fact that God is setting forth, uh, John is setting forth things in signs. These are the things that were set forth in signs to him. I think even it's the word is semaphorio, we use for semaphores uh, and symbols. These symbols then have to be understood in the context in which he's writing. And it makes sense because Revelation 19, 11 to the end, 21, talks about death. So what happens after death? Intermediate state. And therefore, the intermediate state is introduced as something that is a protected zone away from Satan, specifically. Uh, I would let you consider looking at Warfield's analysis because he explains it better in better English, even though he's not available for podcasting, having died some time ago and gathered to his fathers. But he kind of explains how it is that symbols, the things that describe the symbols, run sequentially, but the things symbolized do not. And for us human beings, we run them sequentially too. We live in the little season. When we die, we enter the thousand years. We move from one realm, which is life in the body, to life out of the body, and then finally, in the consummation, the body is restored comes back around full circle at the general resurrection of the living and the dead. But that's a good question because it's usually what uh, pre-mills will uh, hang you on. Uh, I recall that uh, George Eldon Ladd made a big deal saying, hey, uh, this word acri, until, how do you account for that? You know, he wanted to uh, try to insist that the details of the symbols dictate uh, what the symbol was going to extend over. And that's looking at it wrong because any symbol used in scripture, uh, particularly in John's revelation, should look back to the cross-references. And it's the failure to look at the cross-references that, that 
allow us to come up with wrong ideas about the little season here in Revelation 20, verse 3. It is pitted against the time during which you are alive. And this is what happens in Revelation 6. The saints who are in heaven under the altar of God who've died, they're told that their uh, brethren have to finish their course. It's the word plerosontai in the Greek. To fulfill, and it means to fulfill your dromos, your course. It's what Paul says, run the race. He says your brothers all have to run their race first before you're avenged of those who slaughtered you. And that's what's happening here in the same passage. There's a distinction between these time periods. Uh, we all have to run our course, and you run your course in the little season. That's what Revelation 6 is saying. They have to, you have to wait during the little season during which your brothers are running their course. They have to live their lives too. They have to fight the good fight too. That's what the entire passage in Revelation 6 is telling them. That's why God's judgment and a vengeance upon the wicked must is postponed, so that your brethren can run their race too, that they can fulfill their mission during their little season. We're all in the little season right now. And after the little, after the little season, we individually then enter the millennium, if you want to call it that. But that's a bad word for it. That's why Warfield says, I really hate these terms pre-mill, post-mill. Because there is no mill out there in the, norm, in the sense of a thousand years on earth. It's got nothing to do with a thousand years on earth at all. It's got to do with what's happening in the heavens. And if you look at Revelation 19 and 11, it opens up with, And I saw heaven opened. He was looking up. He wasn't looking on the earth to see anything. He certainly wasn't looking at a throne in Jerusalem for Jesus to sit on. Uh, that's completely impossible based on what Hebrews 8.5 tells us, right? It says, If he were on earth... He would not be a priest. But Psalm 110 says he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah 6, 12, and 13 says he is a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both, between his kingship and his priesthood. So Jesus can't be sitting on a throne on earth. These are heavenly thrones, all of them. And therefore, we have to take that seriously in connection with the two parallel passages of Revelation 6, 11 and Revelation 12, 12. So I'm saying basically, Cheney, that the passage... In Revelation 20 must be subordinate to the original usage of the symbols or the notion of a, of a little season and how it's used uh, and that makes sense of it otherwise if we say we can detach it from the previous usages that means we can be very fanciful in our interpretation we can end up in Arminian land like I uh, showed you a little earlier we could end up with a big catastrophe at the end of history and then we have to do a lot of uh, backpedaling on our Isaiah, on Psalm 72, on every family blessed, of every nation blessed, all these passages, God swearing that the whole world would be saved, and then has to backpedal on his own oath in his own name. These are dangerous places to go. Uh, a lot of Christians go there, but I think we should hold the line and say, We're, the scripture cannot be broken. And if that means the scripture cannot be broken, then Revelation 6 has the right to dictate how we look at Revelation 20. It should not be simply... Uh, cut off at the knees and say, we don't look at Revelation 6, we look at Revelation 20 and get our doctrine strictly from that and allow no light in from the previous times that St. John actually talked about the little season. I think that's not a good way to go. I mean, you could go there, and most people do, but to ignore the parallel references means your context is shot. You don't have your context anymore for this passage. And if it's already been used by John, let's go back to the scripture and say, what did that say? Because that's what we talk about when you use the notion of the analogy of Scripture, it means what did the Scripture previously tell us about this doctrine? And we let that light shine in from the other passages. We always say, we let the clear explain the obscure. Well, here we have a pretty clear statement in Revelation 6 and in Revelation 12. It helps us 
explained, the obscure in Revelation 20, take some of the darkness out of it. And I think that's what we have to look at. I don't know if that answered fully your question, but I wanted to take a first stab at it. Yeah, it seems to me like sort of a summary of, of the dealing with the after or until in Revelation 20 is that because the because the time period itself is not literal but symbolic, it also makes sense to then say that the chronology or the sequence itself is symbolic, not of one time happening before or after another, but different states in a person's life, that being like on earth and then in heaven. Is that is that sort of fair assessment? Uh, in a sense. I mean, the main thing I try to extract from folks is saying, hey, this apparent battle in Revelation 20, 7, 8, and 9 is not at the end of history. It's currently taking place between the advents. The fire coming down from heaven to destroy these hosts that are depicted here are uh, that's a current reality. It's been going on for 20 centuries that God's fire has been pouring out on his enemies. Uh, that was the promise of the so John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 11, and 12. He says, the winnowing fan is in the Messiah's hand, and he will thoroughly purge the threshing floor, and he will baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. There's two ways to go, fire and Holy Spirit. You're seeing here the baptism by fire, and it destroys these hosts, uh, and they are devoured by them. And so the devouring of the wicked by fire, this baptism by fire, is a continual process. It's actually described without, if you pull some of the imagery out, in Revelation 19. In fact, Revelation 5.8, I think it is, that in front of the throne of God is a sea of glass and it's mixed with fire. That's because below God's throne on the earth, there's nothing but God's wrath being displayed and his mercy through grace through the... Uh, the gospel, because the mission is not to condemn the world. It's already condemned because it lies in the evil one, as John says in his epistle. The goal is to take this world and save it. You know, not that he should condemn the world, but, but through him the whole world should be saved, John 3.17, right? Uh, so that's the mission, and that's what Christ came to do, is to save the world. And in the process, we know a little bit about what's going on in heaven, because this is really a heavenly scene with some peripheral discussion about what happens outside of heaven. And so that's what I'm saying. It's not that it's before and after, even though the symbol runs before and after. It is inside and outside. Inside heaven versus outside heaven. Outside heaven is now. We're outside of it. We don't yet uh, have access to it. Flesh and blood can't even go there. Uh, but your spirit can when God Christ receives you at the moment you die. And then he receives your spirit. But that's not the case at the moment. You and I are all uh, breathing air and that very post mill, in my opinion, because we have a mission and a job to do. And if you want to understand Revelation 20, I think it's incumbent on us at least to look at Revelation 6, where these exact same things, disembodied souls, a little season, by the exact same term as used in Revelation 20, used. And let's, let's base uh, our understanding of one passage on the other, because if there's, no, if there's nothing, that there isn't some connectivity in the symbols used by John. You know, the very fact that there's even thrones here, uh, with disembodied souls tells us a lot about what happens in the letters to the churches when Jesus is talking about uh, the promise uh, to those who are faithful and uh, even unto death. That just talks about, I will grant with you or him to sit with me in my throne, right? If you're faithful unto death. So that notion is again is, is fulfilled here in this passage in Revelation 20, but it is really a heavenly scene. It is not an earthly scene. The only parts of the scene that are earthly are the ones related to the little season. And according to Revelation 6.11, that's the time period in which we're living right now. We're all in the little season right now. 
So don't get caught up in the before and after because that's just part of the symbol. William Hendrickson used to say it this way. He says, that's just a symbol. The reality is far more glorious. Now, he was an amillennial thinker, but he's right about that. Oftentimes, the symbol is far more glorious, or the thing, the reality is far more glorious than the symbol. And the symbol is simply there to convey uh, things uh, in pictures, if you will. Uh, that's why even Warfield says it's not necessarily exegetical science that's going to get you where you need to go with this passage. You kind of have to enter into the method of the seer, uh, into the, the picture language that's being used here. And this book is full of numbers, for example. And uh, what do those numbers mean? Uh, it certainly has sparked a lot of biblical study over the years to try to pin these things down. And I think uh, one of the best things we can do with the book of Revelation is to look at parallel passages. Within the book. Yes. Uh, yeah. As I have to say, it's the same thing about the 666 number. The best thing to look do with that number is to look at the source of all wisdom, which is the scripture, and see where that number occurs in the Bible. And use that as your reference. Uh, don't go looking at uh, the scanner at the supermarket or Ronald Wilson Reagan or what have you. See if the scripture has a reference to 666 and see if it makes sense. I hold that it does. It makes a lot of sense. It's been known for many centuries, but most people are unaware of it today. It's unfortunate, but true. And uh, enlighten us since you brought it up. Sure. Yeah. I'm fascinated now. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Revelation 13. It starts, uh, obviously, at the first verse and concludes with that interesting 18th one that's uh, been the bane of expositors, obviously more than 666 interpretations. Uh, I've, seen, <laughs> I've seen quite a few on Facebook, uh, at some of our favorite haunts, my friends. But... yeah. The very first verse says, And I saw a beast rising, I stood on the shore of the sands of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up uh, out of the sea, uh, having the names of blasphemy on his forehead. Now let's parse that. He says, I saw a beast rising up. Keep that idea of rising up in your head. And he had the names of blasphemy on his forehead. Blasphemy are claims to lordship. The beast is claiming, I am the Lord, I am God. He's claiming godlike prerogatives, which the modern state, obviously, as we well know here, does in fact do. So here we have this beast that rises up out of the sea that claims to be God. And then we have this passage, let him who has wisdom reckon or calculate the number of the beast. It's the number of a man. It's a human number. Is there a number associated with a man in Scripture? Yes. The number 666 is associated with a man's name in Scripture. It's in Ezra 2.13, there, where there is a um, census. By the way, don't be surprised there's a census, because there's also a census in the book of Revelation. You will know that every one of the tribes uh, are listed. Sons of Issachar, 12,000. Sons of uh, Asher, 12,000. Sons of Judah, 12,000. So if you look in Ezra 2.13, it reads, Now the sons of Adonikam, 666. Same syntax there. Who is Adonikam? What does that mean? Well, it's a composite form from the word Adonai, the Lord, and then the verb to rise up, it means the Lord who rises up. Now, that could be a stupendous coincidence that the one time in the scripture that 666 is associated with the man in the Old Testament and his name means the Lord who rises up. And that in Revelation 13:1 we see, I saw the beast rise up out of the sea, claiming to be God. Adonai, the Lord who rises up. That would mean that the name means or is in fact Adonaikam, the Lord who rises up. It's simply that his name is the claim to Godhood. I'm the Lord who rises up out of the sea. I am out of the political process. I become the modern power state and I'll uh, attribute all prerogatives of power and authority and sovereignty to myself 
uh, God notwithstanding. So that means that instead of being some exciting thing like, oh, we pinned it down to Nero Caesar, or we pinned it down to uh, some Al-Qaeda guy or what have you, it's a tautology. It means there's nothing really shocking here. It basically is simply a reassertion of the nature of the beast and his, his claims. So, uh, and where did we go for our answer? We went to scripture. And what does the Bible say over and over and over again? He who has wisdom, uh, let him lean on his own understanding, but seek it out of where? The word. The wise person goes to the word of God to learn things and to discern things and to discriminate things, to determine what things are. The Bereans went to scripture continually. We weren't very Berean with 666 because though this idea that I've just floated to you has been around at least since the 17th century, the Vitringas mentioned it in their commentaries in Revelation, and Hengstenberg in the early 19th century put it in his commentary in Revelation, it's since been poo-pooed. Uh, even a good man like Kenneth Gentry says, well, let just read that passage in Ezra 2.13 and see if it's convincing. That's not the way to approach it. That's simply kind of, that's a little bit on the flippant side, to be honest. And then the challenge, well, you know, it's in a, a, a census. Well, you guess what? There's a census right before this passage in Revelation 13.2, in the seventh chapter, right? And yeah. So, uh, and the format's the same. So it could well be that we're covering a lot of ground over and over again in the book of Revelation. And I think that's a, that's a big issue because from everything I can see, the book of Revelation continually is referring to the victory of Christ over everything. I, I challenge anyone to explain to me how Revelation 11.15 makes any sense when it says, Behold, all the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. How is that? Anywhere near make any sense if you don't hold at that point in Revelation 11 that we have the conversion of the world. That all the nations are Christ's nations at that point, and that he's, they're all his disciples at that point. You know, I think one of the most stunning things in the whole book of Revelation, there's quite a few of them, obviously, but from a postmodal position, is the victory that's implicit in Revelation 8.1. Now, you all probably know that this entire vision of this book, all 22 chapters, was delivered in a single day, on the Lord's Day, on Patmos, correct? Yeah. So, think about Revelation 8.1. If you look at it, it says, And there was silence in heaven for an entire half hour. This man, John, is sitting there, and for half hour in that day, he didn't eat lunch, and I think that he had, a, he had the scroll earlier, I guess, or later. But there's nothing happening. Heaven is not boiling over with wrath anymore. And, of course, up until that time, we get all sorts of pourings of the wrath of God and, and trumpets and warnings from heaven because, of course, as Paul says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men. But that's not true for half an hour. For an entire half hour, I must have stunned John as saying, what's going on? Heaven's quiet. It's quieted. Why is it quieted? Because there's no more people to pour wrath upon. That's why. It's one of those interesting passages in Revelation, and it really proves that these chapter breaks are really bad <laughs> throughout the Bible. And this is one yeah. of the worst places of them, right? That we can tell right away. This is really the conclusion of a string of scriptures that lead to a victory where God no longer has it. So the peace of heaven is astonishing. It must have stunned John to sit there for half hour of his day in a quiet heaven. How could that possibly be when the whole book is just rife with God's wrath and anger? and lightnings and thunderings and blood up to the horses' bridles up to 1600 steady and all this. But here's a half hour of peace at verse 8. We have the, and that's why it seems to me and Warfield and others that the book of Revelation is really looking at the victory of Christ from different facets and angles. 
probably seven parallel visions, if you will, that cover the same basic ground, but look at it from different points of view. That means I'm not a preterist when I say that, of course. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah, no one has to, you know, I'm respectful of preterism. I think it's a very plausible position, but I am not a convinced adopter of it. I think idealism has a little bit more to say that uh, is worth looking at, uh, like Rashtuni or Warfield or Bettner were. Uh, but the point there is that we had this victory in Revelation 11.15. We had this apparent victory in Revelation uh, 8.1. And then look at what John Owen, the Puritan, said about Revelation 17, when the ten... Uh, nations or the ten horns if you will those ten kings turn and destroy the harlot he says why do they destroy the harlot because they've all been converted to christ you see in the idealist version of the revelation the seven heads of revelation represent egypt assyria babylon middle persia macedonia then rome is the sixth head which now is when paul when john is writing and then after the sixth head is the seventh head with the ten horns. The ten horns appear at the same time as the seventh head. That represents a multiplicity of nations. And we're living in the period of the ten horns. And these ten horns, as John Owen said, he's no slouch when it comes to Bible connections, right? Uh, we were yeah. very respectful of the man who wrote, you know, had 6,999 pages to say about the book of Hebrews. <laughs> uh, and then wrote 16 massive volumes of other things uh, to boot. So when he says, look, and he, by the way, he wasn't the only one to say it, that Revelation 17 is, speaks about the conversion of all ten nations and they destroy false religion. You could almost say that they're enforcing the first table of the law if you're a covenanter. I'm not. But if for those who are, they might say, hey, that's an interesting idea. Because they do destroy false religion. And they could only do that according to John Owen and David Brown because they converted to Christ. And they're not going to tolerate uh, false religion because they will pursue the truth. And that's what we're talking about at that point. Very, very fascinating. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm very sympathetic to idealism because while I am on a technical level a preterist, um, whenever an idealist talks, I say, I totally agree with you. I just see it more as an application thing than a fulfillment. But, sure. um, and I think that's good. You know, that, Gary DeMar made a very good point recently, and it wasn't just made by him recently. He's It's been said many times that, look, Let's just assume preterism is, we're going to defend that. And someone says, well, that means that none of it applies to us. I said, well, what about the book of Corinthians? It applied right. to ancient church too. So uh, application is inherent in all of scripture. You can't just simply say it doesn't, it's not, it's just ancient history at this point. You yes. know, the Psalm 119 says, thy commandment is exceeding broad, right? I've seen it into all perfection, but your commandments are exceedingly broad. It means the word of God applies to everything. It's, it's just, uh, there's no end of the scope of God's words. Uh, and right. their application. So that's not a right way to look at preterism. But I do think that yeah, the idealists, uh, and I think well, the whole idea of a complete victory of Christ, gives you this. It means that you can take many more scriptures literally than any other school of thought, more than pre-mill or dispensational pre-mill, more than amill, and more than post-mill that holds to, we're going to uh, say that there's not going to be last man saved. You know, we're going to hold to a final apostasy because you can go from every single passage from starting from Genesis all the way through and say, but this is literally, literally true that in, uh, every nation, every family, uh, that they'll all be saved, that there'll be no uh, unconverted people left at the end of history. Uh, in fact, that's exactly what uh, history is waiting for, is for um, the last enemy to be destroyed, Right. And the last right. enemy is destroyed, which is death. And death releases uh, is destroyed when it releases its hold on Christ's children, uh, the, those who died in the Lord. 
and the men in the living cannot die. That's how Christ completes his conquest. It's an amazing thing that happens on the last day of history, when death itself is completely consumed, which is a fulfillment of prophecies in Isaiah 25, I think it's verse 7 and 8, where uh, God consumes death and destroys it and wipes away every tear. Uh, there's nothing new in that idea uh, when it's propagated in the New Testament. So, right. Uh, but very, very powerful stuff, and I think there's a lot of hope that can be gleaned from this. And so if you look at the book of Revelation and say, hey, you know, you got this, these big armies, you have a lot of blood here. I actually did an analysis of how, you know, 1,600 stadia of blood, how many human beings does it take to get that much blood? Just assuming, you know, there's no blood from the horses that they're riding. Uh, and it works out to about 20 billion people. That's a lot of blood. Uh, Gary DeMar's already pointed out that you can't get that many horses because there's only like 50 million horses in the entire world. So you can't get 200 million horses to scrounge up for any such army as conceived here. But it's even worse than that. You don't have 20 billion people around who to be in that valley to lift that blood up, to take it literally. But if you're an idealist and not a premillennialist, premillennialist has to try to squeeze all that into some future uh, tribulation, and a preterist has to figure out how to explain that away in uh, the Vespasianic War that ended in 70 AD with Israel's uh, dissolution and destruction. If you spread it over all history, if that's 20 or 30 centuries worth of the wrath of God, it could be 20 billion people's worth. That is actually literally possible then. But you don't. But you have to look at it and saying this is idealization. It's what's going on over the long haul. And so idealism basically says the book is actually looking at the before between the advents primarily and giving us a big picture of what's going on. It's not just three and a half years in first century or three and a half years or seven years in the near future. Uh, it's very different. It's a big picture view. The historicist is similar, but he tries to put the entire book of Revelation into chronological order. I think right. that's a very difficult uh, thing to pull off because you're always backfilling and saying, well, I guess that wasn't the uh, rise of Islam in chapter 9. It's things like that. Whereas an idealist yeah. simply says we have seven basic big sections and they all cover the same ground and they all end with the victory of Christ. They all end with something as profound as Revelation 11.15, which is a very powerful verse. And it's very hard to explain that you're not going back and looking at the beginning of, of the period when you open up Revelation 12. Uh, it seems so self-evidently talking about the birth of the church, for example. So it looks like the book is definitely going backward in time and then recovering the same ground and saying, let's look at it from a different angle. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. But I'm very respectful of, Revel of the preterist view. I just think that they sometimes push um, certain ideas to the exclusion of contrary evidence. And I think our best bet as exegetes is not to do special pleading. Uh, the 666 number bugs me a lot because uh, the reality is that that entails a, uh, a misspelling. When you put the letter Yod back in, which is the way to, to uh, Hebraize uh, Neron Kaiser, uh, it's 676, not 666. And though uh, I know one of my dear brothers in the Preterist side said, well, here's an earlier uh, manuscript that shows that the Yod is missing, I come back and say, the yod is missing because this old ancient manuscript is folded right where the yod should be, and it's cracked, and you can't see it. So there's your evidence. you got a problem with that evidence for saying Nero absolutely positively is the beast of Revelation. I don't think that's the case. I'm sympathetic mm -hmm. to the view, but um, it's not because 666 is a slam dunk. It's not. And, and I think it's even more troubling in Revelation 11 because one of the big... 
um, appeals of Revelation as a preterist text is, hey, there's a still standing temple in Revelation 11. We know what the dispensationalists do with that. They say, hey, we're going to rebuild this temple. Good luck over at the Dome of the Rock. We're going to bring the entire uh, Muslim world down on you in a heartbeat. But uh, here's a still standing temple. And I said, well, that's a great idea, except that Revelation 11:2, the very next verse, the preterists have to give away all that ground and say, now at this point, this is no longer the same temple. This is a spiritual temple. Uh, I get heartburn when I hear the the idea, the gap theory applied to Genesis 1, saying, well, Genesis 1, 1, but Genesis 1, 2, there's a whole different uh, thing going on there. Well, we're doing the same thing with Revelation 11. I think it's a problem. And you have to really justify that sudden switch saying, this is little temple in the first verse, but it's not the little temple in the second verse to the end of the chapter. And that seems to be a little bit too convenient. Now, that doesn't mean yeah. that every position doesn't have problems, including idealism, but we should confront them because we're serious about the scripture and we want to work toward uh, a doctrinal conclusion that the people of God can get their uh, teeth into, right? So that's done not by evading the problems, but confronting them head on and saying, okay, we have a problem here with this model. What do we need to do to make sense of it? Maybe we should release uh, and, and yield on some points to protect the preterist position from these charges of playing fast and loose with uh, Revelation 11. I should point out, by the way, that uh, a lot of the times people like Renan and other uh, 19th century uh, critics of Revelation said, hey, we adopt the early date because it proves that St. John is a false prophet because he said the temple wouldn't be destroyed, and it was, you see. So oh, if we realize, yeah, if we realize that preterism was adopted uh, by the liberals, uh, and understand why, that's why we have to kind of do this shuffle with Re Revelation eleven one, saying, hey, hey, there's a standing temple there in Revelation eleven two, but it's not any in the second verse anymore. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, that's how you account for its destruction and try to to make it work. And that's kind of uh, legwork you have to do with this book, which is a very complex but promises a blessing to those who read it. And uh, I think that's kind of a, a very important point because the book's obviously there to give us comfort about certain things. And as a post-millennialist, I believe that it brings us comfort because it uh, describes that all the attempts to defy God are doomed from the get-go. Uh, I just simply believe that the victories are strewn throughout the book uh, and they're not just situated at the very end. I think mm. we get the sense of gospel victory uh, throughout this amazing uh, uh, revelation that uh, St. John delivered to us. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, very, that's very, very helpful for me. Um, and uh, did anybody else have another question before I jump in? Yeah, I do. One more. Um, typically, when uh, post-millennialists make their um, exegesis of Revelation 20, they tie in uh, Matthew chapter 12 in terms of the binding of Satan. Uh, do you see the binding of Satan in Matthew 12 as being distinct from the binding of Satan in Revelation 20? I would say predominantly yes. The only difference being that uh, I think in the passage in, in Matthew 12, uh, which you're quite right, all millennials and postmillennials have appealed to that uh, passage and tried to associate 20, uh, Revelation 20 with that passage. Uh, I think it has a lot more to do with the cleaning out of Satan's house, uh, which means that the dominion that Satan had through say, demonic possession, uh, and because this, really this comes back to them when they're saying, hey, uh, how is it that uh, we're able to defeat Satan on these terms? And uh, 
basically Jesus is saying, I've gone before and made the way possible for uh, Satan to have a public uh, show of his defeat uh, at the hands of the apostles, the disciples. So I think that's a key part of the picture here, is that it has to do with the context in the chapter of the gospel of the defeat of Satan and uh, his dominion over all sorts of things. I mean, I think when you think about it, <laughs> the destruction of the herd of swine was quite a fascinating defeat of Satan uh, right then and there, because uh, Legion, if you will, as the name was given, uh, they all fled into the pigs because it was before their time for Jesus to clean them their clock completely. Uh, and that's exactly what we face there. So, you know, the binding of Satan is in respect to the fact that he, uh, in the time of the Gospels, uh, was Jesus was coming at him with all he had. In fact, Jesus makes an interesting point. He says, I'm going to go up uh, against Satan, and he's got nothing in me. That's not true for us, by the way. Satan can always make a tempting claim against us. It's very hard for us. Um, but for Christ, he, there was nothing, there's no point in common, there's no temptation that t that couldn't be batted down by the Messiah. And so he went proactively against Satan. And so the the fall of Satan from heaven, he says, I beheld him fall like lightning from heaven. And I think that's a parallel to Revelation 12, for sure. But Satan's binding is in respect to his power. Um, and I think this relates to this wonderful passage in Hebrews 2.14. Satan through his death, right? Christ uh, was defeating Satan, who through death uh, kept all those in bondage, who through fear of death were uh, you know, kind of messing up the quotation there. But you can look that up. Also, the comment that uh, John makes, I think it's in 1 John 3, 8, that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And, of course, the works of the devil are multi multiple. There are all sorts of things that he attempts to pull up out of the earth and infest our minds with and our institutions with and our cultures with. And all these things are going to be laid waste by Christ through the process of the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. Uh, by the way, I think Post Mill should always focus on the work of the Holy Spirit uh, because I think it's a pivotal aspect of the conquest of Christ. We should not the despair of the Spirit's work. In fact, even Spurgeon, in one of his postmillennial moods, made that famous quotation. You may have seen it on the back of, say, the Paradise Restored by Chilton. Uh, that the Holy Spirit would not suffer the imprecation to rest upon his holy name that he was unable to convert the world. In other words, it would be an insult to say that the Holy Spirit could not convert the world. Uh, and and it would not be allowed. So, uh, But yes, I do think that the binding of Satan in the passage in the Gospel, Matthew 12, is not the exact same thing as being referred to in Revelation 20, with the exception that in the little season, that would be the only time that there would be any necessity to uh, forestall things like uh, demonic attacks and things. And I think these were at a peak when the Son of uh, God walked on the earth um, because I think the, the devil knew that he needed to, uh, he withdrew from Satan, from Jesus after the temptation, and then he plotted to see what else he could pull off. Uh, and uh, the demonic attacks, of course, kept Jesus very busy. Uh, in many places. But look at the tremendous victory he had in Samaria. I think in just two days, according to John 4, the entire region was converted. I mean, talk about a, a massive victory of the gospel just because he talked to the woman at the well. It's astonishing. It's it's unheard of, the victory uh, that shook the foundations of that entire region, that Samaria was laid at the feet of Christ with two days of preaching. It means it can be done. Uh, but lots of us lose hope because uh, things look tough out there. I think things look, look yeah. tougher for Samaria than we're facing today.
Very cool. The The last thing that I know was always a hang-up for me was the parable of the tares and ah, the wheat. Good, good, good point. Uh, let me explain why, how that should be understood, uh, near as I can tell. I want to show uh, some humility because I'd be, I'm going to have to answer for this on the other side of heaven if I don't. Uh, and I'd rather cut bait than fish in that case. So Warfield makes an interesting point about all these passages in Scripture that oftentimes they look at the sense through time. In other words, you always look at extension through space, like uh, the, the geography of the world, covering the whole world, things like this. But he says, but lots of times the prophets and the, and the Lord are looking protensively through time. They're looking from a small beginning to a large end. In many of the parables, we see this, right? A uh, little bit of leaven lost in a whole, three whole measures of meal at last by the power of it shall all be leavened. Uh, same thing of a small mustard seed, but it grows into a tree so large that every bird, not some birds or most birds, but every bird, under the heavens dwells in its branches. This one's saying, if you really push your post mill and make it consistent, that can be taken absolutely literally. And then you can turn the tables on the pre-mills who say, we're the literalists, you guys keep uh, um, eluding and evading the literal sense. No, here we're going to take the literal sense. Every bird under heaven, that means every human being is going to eventually be in the kingdom of God uh, as, as the gospel continues to roll over the world and the Great Commission extends to 20, 30, 40, 50% going on. So what's going on with this parable of the wheat and tares? We have this field in time, and what I'm going to focus on is the reason given by the Lord to the angels not to pull out the tares. He says, do not um, pull out the tares, do not remove them, do not yank them out, because you will yank out wheat. Now, I've heard all sorts of bizarre explanations saying, well, you know, the wheat, the, the roots of the wheat are tangled so that when you pull it, it's going to pull a wheat plant out with it that's next to it, and all sorts of nonsense. You know, good people know how to pull out tares. I mean, it's been done, weeding has been done for centuries, millennia at this point. It's a well-known science. It's easy to pull, do it, and you don't have to pull out any wheat to remove a tear. This is patent nonsense. The reason was already given by the Lord in this parable. He says, don't pull out the tares because you will literally pull out wheat. Now, how is that possible? Look at Terah. Terah is Abraham's dad. Abram's dad initially because he gave him the name of Abram. But he's Abraham's dad when God changed his name. Terah was a all-out pagan. He was a tear. Terah the tear. If Terah was yanked out as a tear by the angels before Abraham was born. Newsflash, there's no Abraham. Abraham is in Tira's loins. If you look at the entire discussion in chapter 7 of Hebrews about Melchizedek, what do we read? That Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek several generations away, right? That's the point, is that we don't pull up tares because every human being is either going to give birth to elect offspring or... Alternatively, the scripture says, their posterity will be cut off. Now, this is pretty obvious what I'm talking about on the one side, saying, okay, uh, I have an unsaved grandfather, but I happen to be a saved individual. A lot of us can trace back and say, yes, I have unsaved uh, predecessors, but uh, salvation came to their children or grandchildren. What happens in the other case? The other case would be where Psalm 37 applies, where David's saying, you know, I looked for... Uh, the, the posterity of the wicked, and it's not there, it's cut off. 
And you look at Psalm 109, verse 14, he says, you know, I will cut off the posterity of the wicked and, and they'll blot out their name in the next generation. What's going on there? Well, there's two basic uh, destinies for an individual. He will either have elect offspring or he will have his posterity cut off. Maybe not in that one generation, but his posterity will be cut off. That's a certainty. These are two mathematically certain phenomena that are going to happen to every human being. You're either going to have elect offspring down the line or your posterity is going to be cut off. Now, it can be cut off many different ways. It could be cut off because, hey, uh, God gave you sterility. Um, a homosexual couple are not going to have children naturally. That's already instantly cut off by nature because you don't have the male and the female, right? Those are uh, dead ends, if you will, reproduction-wise. Uh, God controls the womb. We see this over and over again in Scripture. The matrix of the womb is open to the Lord. Uh, and so he's in the author of it. He controls that. So what this means is that these notions in Scripture that tares give birth to elect non-tares to wheat, and the notion that, by the way, if you don't, your posterity will be cut off. You will not have uh, descendants in the next generations. So you work this out generation by generation. You see that the parable of the wheat and tares gives an explanation, don't pull the tares because you're going to pull out wheat. That means as this process develops over time, after generation after generation, the final generations will be all wheat because either of those generations would be cut off or have elect offspring. More and more elect offspring all the time, and God's the author of election. That's something he's in charge of. That's the father doing his thing. That's the father following the counsel of his own will, and none can stay his hand because election is what he does in the counsels of his own heart, and his, no one can do anything about it because it is wonderful and wise and infinitely good. In his wisdom, he chooses uh, and elects. And he's basically saying, don't be yanking up any tares because I have plans for their grand grandkids. They're going to be mine. They're going to be some, those that I gather into my bosom. So that's where all the saved people come, saved people come from. They come from by not letting the angels go prematurely in and clean out all these tares. Because over time, this wheat, this this field becomes a full wheat field, but if you look at it year to year, it's pretty much uh, a lot of tares and very few wheat. But all the time, there's more wheat because those tares are giving birth to elect children, or those tares are disappearing and having no children. That's what the Bible talks about: either posterity cut off, or we got. Uh, Sons of God on the way. <laughs> uh, sons and daughters of grace that are being born. And that's why the parable of the and tares, we should take that explanation very literally. Why not pull the tares? Because you can actually pull true wheat out. But the wheat are not there in that generation. The wheat are in the loins of the tares. Abraham is in Tira's loins. I am in the loins of my great-grandfather, if you will. Uh, had my great-grandfather been uh, slaughtered in World War II uh, on the Russian front or in Siberia, we had tuberculosis, I wouldn't be here to be talking to you. And that not post-mill, right? So uh, I want to be here to, to tell you guys that uh, the parable of wheat and tares is no objection if you look at it pro-tensively. It's not a picture in any one snapshot of time, but rather that it's an evolving picture. And so the exact same mechanisms that are true for the parable of the wheat and tares and the parable of the mustard seed are applying to this. In other words, process over time, pro-tensive aspect. 
And then you look at the exact reason. Why do we not pull up a tear? The only way to evade this explanation is to come up with some uh, agrarian counter-explanation that says something about tears and, you know, leave them grow together. I have news for you. Let the two, two things grow together. Weeds can grow much faster than wheat. They can outgrow it unless it's very, very healthy wheat. Uh, and so naturally, the, um, all of those who were involved in the harvest in the past, in biblical times, were very diligent to take care of the field. In fact, if you look at Isaiah 5, uh, there's a big deal about how to properly take care of a field, in this case a vineyard, but uh, you have to take all of that in, into account. So that would be what I think we should do when we look at the parable of wheat and tares. It could not possibly be teaching a different lesson or a contradictory lesson to the other two parables. Right. They, they teach the same message, but we are kind of hung up on saying it all compacted into one generation. No, let it spread out and see what's going on. Consider exactly the reasoning given why we don't pull up tares. Take it at face value. Again, take it literally. Why do we not pull up a tear? He said it because you will pull up wheat. Because the wheat are hidden in the tares in generations to come. And this solves the problem. Uh, I know people will say, eh, it's a wheat field, not a tear field. But these are ways to try to evade the issue uh, or talk about historic process. I know Dr. Gary North is big on that. This is a preservation of historic process. Well, th that process goes to a great final apostasy. What's the big deal? It's no wonder that our mills laugh at us and saying, you know, when push comes to shove, yeah, you have a temporary victory, but you're back with us talking about a complete collapse of all civilization at the end. So it's a matter of degree, isn't it? But right. if you take Warfield's position, it's not a matter of degree. None of those prophecies of Scripture fall down, not a one. And they're all fulfilled to the letter, literally, about the victory of Christ. And we don't have to um, shuffle around or backpedal. We can take the Scripture exactly as it stands written and say, yes, to the last man standing. We don't have to say, world doesn't mean world, or all doesn't mean all, or every doesn't mean every. We can say, actually, they do. And it's failure of nerve. Uh, even Bettner... Uh, for all, remember, in the middle of the 20th century, after the First World War and then the Second World War, it was a big shock to post mills who were expecting too quick a progress. They were looking at the newspapers too, folks. <laughs> Bad news. You should never do that. God doesn't look at newspapers. We shouldn't uh, hang those on God and saying, "Isn't this the the battle plan?" But Bettner, who had read Warfield's view, kind of was influenced by the pessimism, and so he went back to the notion of a final apostasy. But when he revised his book in 84, he re-examined Warfield's view and said, you know, I'm going to rewrite this book. I'm going to change this book. He's already in his 80s, this poor man. But he writes the book and says, I want to get the record right. I don't want to leave this pessimistic post-millennialism out there in my book called The Millennium. I want to put the truth out there and just let it go to town and let it, people dispute it and debate it and argue over it. But at least I'm going to put it out there. So it took quite a while for us to get back from Warfield's view of a complete victory because postmodernism dove really quickly into a what we call an amillennial stage. Rustuni called it an amillennial hangover to keep that final apostasy in the picture. Uh, and it's hard to get rid of because it's what appears to be exactly what's written in Revelation 20 if you pay no attention to the cross-references. And most people don't look at the cross-references. Uh, they figure it's a completely uh, insulated section of Scripture, uh, which there is no other impact on. And we can then, instead of going to Revelation 6.11 to explain it, do what a lot of folks do. And I think Shaney uh, made a reference to it, to look at uh, the binding of Satan in uh, the strong man of Revela uh, in the Gospel of Matthew 12. And uh, 
I think we're on safer ground looking at St. John's use of the little symbol, the little season, uh, that brief time, the microchronon, to pull our doctrine from there. Uh, at least I think it's a much stronger position than, uh, than going elsewhere. That said, that means that though I'm a preterist with, say, Matthew 24 and most of Matthew 25 up to verse 30, uh, I am not a preterist with Revelation. But I think preterism has a, is very sound and, and very defensible with the vast bulk of the Olivet Discourse up until the time that we see the white throne in Revelation 20, uh, rather, sorry, Matthew 25, 31, which correlates with the white throne of Revelation 20, 11. I think these two scriptures kiss and meet, if you will, to use the phraseology of the psalmist. Uh, and that's where we have a connection in the scriptures between events. But all that to say, um, we need to take the scripture and work in terms of the analogy of scripture, look for the cross-references, look for the parallels. And Dr. Joe Mocraft said something very profound, we should all pay attention to it. He says, not all apparent parallels are actual parallels. They can look like they're a parallel, but they really aren't. Because it's simply that the Bible is approaching something from two different points of view and might have used a common picture to describe it or a common symbol with which to deal with it. And I think that takes a lot of discernment and judgment just to compare all the parts of scripture and say, what's the story? Cool. That was, that was really helpful. And uh, one more question about uh, the parable of the tares, actually. Um, so the harvest at the end of the age, where the, tear, where the tares are gathered first and the wheat is then gathered into the barn, how do you understand that to be interpreted? Well, if you look at the uh, final judgment, that's exactly what happens. The wicked on the one side of the throne go into their destiny, and then the righteous enter into the heaven, the kingdom prepared beforehand for them. Exact same sequence of events. And so what we have there is a contrast between two kingdoms, right? The kingdom of the Son, and then the kingdom of the Father. That's why if you look at Matthew 13, verse 41, talks about the kingdom of the Son, and then shining like the Son... Uh, in the kingdom of their father, verse 43. This is contrast, as Wolfo said, it's not accidental. It's not like Jesus got mixed up in his terminology. The kingdom of the Son is what's consummated when death is destroyed, and that's the last thing that Jesus destroyed. And then he delivers the entire kingdom up to the Father, and then Jesus rules the, uh, the eternal kingdom by virtue of being the second person of the Trinity. He rules now from the right hand of heaven by appointment of the Father. In other words, it's the economic trinity is work right now. But after the consummation of all things, he rules with the Father ontologically as part of the ontological trinity. So we make this distinction between the mediatorial kingdom of Christ, which he rules from the right hand of all, for of all power and authority right now, uh, versus when he gives the kingdom to the Father and runs it. So... The end is the end of the world. The harvest is the end of the world. The sun to lay at the full end. And that's when the angels essentially remove and move out, if you will, the wicked dead. Into, because, of course, hell, uh, hell, Hades, the seas bring up all the dead. And they're arrayed before this white throne. And that is the end of the world, by the way, because in Revelation 20, 11 says, I saw the him who sat on the white throne and from whose presence the heaven and earth fled away. That's the end of the world. There is no heaven and earth because they flee away. They're out of the picture completely. But all mankind stands naked before him. And there's a different fate for one than for the other. And the angels are participating in that process at that point. Now we're going to have the right and the left hand fates uh, meted out. So there's always a hell in this situation. We're not going with the position of Mr. Bell, who says there's no hell, uh, because he's quite mistaken. There, There is a final hell, and it's their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched, because there is a corner of the universe that's involved in justice. 
but in a post mill picture uh, it's a small corner because the vast bulk of mankind including all those who died in infancy uh, are among the elect and so that makes for a very different picture it's a very positive picture there's a lot of hope in it and it means that our work is not in vain because uh, we're pushing forward to, to victory not to defeat uh, but the kind of defeats that people talk about let me put it this way. A lot of folks talk about these spiritual victories, and with a lot of those victories, we don't need any defeats because they're horrible. <laughs> they're not getting us anywhere. Uh, we need to be a little bit more serious about our faith and its application uh, and the uh, part that the God's law plays in that. Very cool. I cool. think Dustin had a couple questions. Yeah. Um, my first question is, uh, how come you haven't liked our Debt Pulse Mill Facebook page yet? <laughs> <laughs> um. I'm inviting you. I'm inviting you to like the page so you can partake in the wonders of that Pulse Mill on Facebook. Well, uh, it's a hashtag thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually have Twitter, and use, I don't use hashtags, so that's part one. So I always thought it was just, uh, I didn't realize there was a separate page per se there. So I will um, repent and rebuke myself and go do that. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, uh, but we do actually have some questions from folks on Facebook um, one, the first one was condense Warfield's post-millennial argument down for us. I think you've done a pretty good job of that already. Let me just say this, that he did not base his post-millennialism on Revelation 20. He based it on Romans 11 and 1 Corinthians 15. And, and, and another place he placed it was Matthew 5.18. That's a weird place, you might say. How is it that we get post-mill out of Matthew 5.18? Read what he has to say about that in the... Uh, article called Jesus' Mission According to His Own Testimony. He does an exposition saying, look, until heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall not pass from the law until all be accomplished. He says there's two untils in this sentence, that Greek word heos, until heaven and earth pass away, and at the bottom, until all be accomplished. And the all refers to the two repeated ones, one jot, one tittle, shall not fall from the law until all of them be accomplished. So he says, so this verse is really not about what under what condition does the law pass away? It's the condition under which heaven and earth pass away. Heaven and earth passes away when all the law has been kept. So the law of God that's been broken billions of times every moment right now, it will one day be kept. And the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, and strength, right? That means you have to be saved to keep God's law because an unsaved person cannot keep God's law, cannot confess Christ. Jesus wouldn't even let the Satan, uh, the devils, the demons call him the Christ. He wouldn't accept praise from unclean lips. So it has to be done with, uh, without dishonesty. It can't be uh, vacuous and, and false. It has to be true. It can't be uh, a fraudulent claim. of. So in that point, um, we, we had that picture uh, put together. So Matthew 5.18 is actually, as he says, embodies a prophecy that the law would one day be kept, that Jesus came, not that the law would continue to be broken, but that it would actually be kept and that he would work out the law into the lives of his disciples. And that's what the New Covenant's all about. I will write my law on their hearts, and their minds will I write them, and they shall be my people, I'll be their God. And no man shall need to teach his neighbors, saying, No to the Lord. So Matthew uh, Warfield situated his postmillennial hope on passages like this, or, like I said, Romans 11. And Romans 11, another place that the premills don't want to go where this passage goes, because it defies them. The passage is saying that all Gentiles will come in, the pleroma, the fullness of the Gentiles become in, then all Israel is saved. Pleroma, totality. Not some Gentiles or the con Gentiles contingent to the elect. These are all evasions of the text. 
the literal text says the totality of the Gentiles, all Gentiles shall be coming in into the, uh, the faith, and then all Israel shall be saved. Paul is riffing on Isaiah 19, which talks about Egypt and Assyria, the worst enemies of Israel, coming in to God's kingdom first, and then Israel is the third part. Isaiah, uh, Romans 11 is nothing but a commentary on the prophecy already laid out by Isaiah in the 19th chapter, verses 23 to 25. Very powerful stuff. And Warfield brings all this stuff to the table saying, you know, we don't have to backpedal on this or use a modal interpretation that says this is just the mode by which you get saved. No, the passage can be taken literally. And as Meyer, the great 19th century exegete, pointed out, he says, uh, all sorts of uh, evasions have been launched and floated that seek to evade the literal sense of the apostle. And this starting with the reformers, Luther and Calvin, because they were induced to depart from the literal sense out of dogmatic considerations. Because of their dogma, their position on other theology points, they said, we don't want to have this, we must attack it out of dogmatic considerations. But newsflash, dogma does not dictate exegesis, it's the other way around. The text controls us. We are to be submitted to the text of scripture, not play games with it, to bend it to our dogma. Right, So you can't evade the text of Romans 11. And Haldane and others have said, look, it's possible with God for this to be true because with God nothing's impossible, including the salvation of the entire world, which is predicted in Romans 11. All Gentiles and then all the Jews. In the meantime, as the Gentiles are being gathered, partial blindness on the, of Israel has occurred. The blindness is not total. Some Jews are still coming in. Some descendants of Abraham are coming into the fold, are being saved. But it's not total because there's a blindness that's placed on them until the totality of the Gentiles become in. That word pleroma is so important because we would have a heart attack if someone turned around and says, well, the fullness of, divinity, of, of Godhead does not dwell in Jesus bodily. Because Paul makes this point, I think, in Colossians and and repeats it elsewhere, I think in Ephesians, but says the, you know, he says the pleroma, the fullness of the Godhead, dwells in Jesus bodily. That's a point of heresy if you deny that. And so we have to say pleroma, fullness, totality, needs to be taken as it stands and not be monkeyed with. Don't monkey with the text. Don't let your eschatology of all things tamper with the text. But if you leave the text as literal, then you have to be very, very post-mill. You have to to speak about the conversion of the entire world, as Warfield pointed out. And that's why amillennialists like uh, the Lutheran scholar Lenski said, only an exegete would take this passage literally. That's a huge confession on his part. He concedes that that passage literally does mean the world would be converted. But because his dogma, his amillennial theory, dictates how he's going to take that scripture, he poo-poos it and dismisses it with scorn. But we should embrace the promises of scripture, Right. Uh, let, let God be true, but every man a liar is what we should say when we uh, hear objections like that. Good. Thank awesome. you. So that, that question was from Jason Garwood. Um, another one we got from uh, Manny Garza is, he said, it's hard to find theonomic Bible commentary. Do you know of any that you could recommend? Apart from Rashtunis? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, well, certainly Gary North has written an economic commentary in the Bible in area, every area where we find that stuff. Uh, we can go there. Uh, we're still publishing at Chalcedon uh, works by Rush Duny that haven't seen print yet. As you know, we have his, uh, already in print the Gospel of John, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, uh, Jude, um, James, uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, uh, 
Revelation, obviously. Uh, 1970s, a very early work of Rashtuni before he adopted Warfield's position. He turned to Warfield's position by 1994 and put it into systematic theology. Uh, but we're still publishing works by Rashtuni. For example, his first and second Corinthian commentaries will be due out later this year. We expect to have it out by Christmas time, so we can then see what Rashtuni had to say about that. He also uh, lectured on uh, the letters of John, I believe, and that should be very powerful to, to get through. So that's, that's out there. And uh, there's more coming. I think we're going to see a lot of scholarship coming from folks that haven't even yet um, gotten through seminary, but who are very committed to the message and wanting to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and uh, sharing this perspective, which I think opens up a lot of scriptures in ways that you wouldn't otherwise understand them. And sometimes it's getting into the meat of things. So they're out there. Uh, Rashtuni, of course, wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy, all five books of uh, the books of Moses. That's a huge commentary set and uh, well worth acquiring. Uh, but there are more. We're actually going to see, I cannot uh, divulge the details, but you're going to see a, a scholar from Europe um, who's going to be brought onto the table. Uh, I don't think he's alive with it anymore, but his works finally will be translated into English, uh, and people are going to be just amazed at what uh, scholarship was available there. Uh, it'll be introduced uh, into seminaries and things like that, where it'll have a deep effect on uh, our awareness of the theonomic distinctives as they apply to the exposition of Scripture. Uh, and it's going to be a huge thing when it comes out. I did everything I could to try to get my hands on these things and get them published earlier, but they said, no, uh, this has to be done this way, and uh, we'll just have to be patient with it. So I'm patient, but I've seen little pieces of it, and they're very exciting to me. It means that there was not just one restaurant working all this time. There were other folks working the same depth, and uh, we just didn't know about them. You know, like the 7,000 that didn't bother need a bail. Looks like we have other scholars out there who are able to take uh, the scripture and open it up in just astonishing ways. Awesome. That's, that's great news. Um, well, we got one more question from Justin Ryan. He said, um, in what age does Jeremiah 31, 34, Isaiah 2, 4, and Isaiah 65, 20 happen uh, in compared to the Amils? So that's, um, you know, the, the the short swords being beaten into plowshares and no one saying know the Lord to their neighbor and infants dying young, old men not living old. Um, so you would say that that is for this age. The, yeah. In fact, my, uh, my reference would point would be um, Isaiah 11. Is, and by the way, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Isaiah 2.4 because it has context, right? You've got two verses before it. And it speaks about the law going forth and people coming and inviting their friends and brothers, come let us uh, go to the um, temple of the, or the mountain of the Lord of hosts and let him teach us out of his law and of his ways. And as a consequence of their focus on God's law, then swords are beaten into plowshares, right? And spears into pruning hooks. And then nations learn not to, to be, uh, raise up Lord again, uh, uh, sword against na uh, nation, neither shall they learn war evermore. So peace is a byproduct of something else. Peace is a byproduct of the victory of God's law. And bonus that God's law is embraced. It's not imposed. It's embraced. People want to grab it. There's a magnetic pull toward the house of God. I think we're missing the boat here as theonomists because people say, I don't want to go to a theonomic church because that, you know, it's like pulling teeth. It shouldn't be that way. People should be excited about the law of God and saying, God actually has answers. Uh, I hate using the word blueprints because it sounds very architectural, but I would be pretty interested in uh, someone who has answers to our the problems that plague our society. Uh, and by the way, if you read Psalm 119 or even the first Psalm, these guys delight in the law of God. 
but you have to learn to to delight in it. We live in an era, I think, that speaks more like uh, Hosea 8.12, right? In Hosea 8.12, God says, I have written to Ephraim concerning the marvelous things in my law, the wonderful things in my law, but he esteemed them a strange thing. Ephraim thought it was bizarre. And the modern Christian is like Ephraim. He thinks that the law of God is a strange thing. In fact, he poo-poos it. Uh, it's bizarre. Who would want to go back to this agrarian society junk? Blah, blah, blah. But that's not the way God sees it. He says these were marvelous things, but he thought they were strange. They're perpetually always marvelous things. And as people become aware of it and understand it, and God grants us uh, a love for God's law, because we can, we can pray for that, right? We can pray for wisdom. We can pray that God give us right affections. It's right there in Psalm 119. Give me right affections, the right taste. The Hebrew word ta'am, to taste, to, to delight in things. Yeah, and, and kind of mentioning what you just said about loving, um, you know, God's law. I even think about it, um, and I, I it never came out, I never purposely decided beforehand that I was going to do this, but I noticed that in my prayers with my children, um, when I'm praying with them, I, you know, I pray that, um, that God would help change our hearts and that he would help us to make better decisions and that we would obey his law. And then I explain, you know, um, to the ch- my children that it's, you know, it's nothing but that we can do on our own, but we're praying that the spirit would be moving in our hearts and will be changing us to look more like Christ so that we, we do honor God's law. So I want to instill in them this idea that God's law is good and it's just, and we should want to obey it. And we can not on our own by our own will, but by, by the help of the Spirit, we'll learn to obey his law and to love that. And uh, I just think, I think that's something that's important. And uh, as we, you know, growing up, our, the next generation, we're teaching and training them, raising them to love the Lord. We're teaching them to love his law and the perfection that it is. And knowing that we can seek to attain it, not that we could do it on our own, but the Spirit um, uh, can work in us. And that that's a hope that we have. And not that we'll ever be able to fully... Uh, obey every moment of every day, but that should be something that we try to do because it honors God and doesn't dishonor Him. I think that's why Matthew five nineteen is such an important verse. I only have a couple of um, litmus test verses. One of them is Isaiah eight twenty, right? To law and testimony, if they don't speak according to these, it's because there's no light in them. But the other one is Matthew five nineteen: Whosoever shall loosen even the least of these commandments and teach men so shall be called least in the kingdom of the heavens or kingdom of God. But whosoever shall do and teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I think this kind of tells us how God discriminates between those. And I think it's very interesting to look at what is the least commandment of God. Have you ever studied that issue? What is the least commandment of God? No. Mm-hmm. no. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, the, the, <clears throat> the rabbis identify it as uh, Deuteronomy 22, verses 6 and 7. So this is the least commandment that Moses gave. It has to do with what do you do when you're walking around and you encounter a bird's nest on the ground? Uh, but what's interesting about this passage, which protects the species, it says you can definitely take the eggs, but don't harm the mother. Let the species go on. Uh, is that attached to that text, to that commandment, that least commandment of God, it says, don't do this and your day shall be long in the land that the Lord God has given you. It's the exact same promise as for the fifth commandment, the first commandment with the promise, honor your right. father and your mother. So that means that the law of God is a whole. It is a seamless garment, as Rushdie would say. From one end to the other, it has this amazing coherence and integrity and unity. And that's why even the least commandment of God has a promise of long life in the land. Why would we, why would we not keep the least commandment of God with that promise attached to it? It makes no sense to me to say it's okay now to destroy species uh, because we don't have to obey Deuteronomy 22 because it's the least, least important commandment of all the ones that God gave. To prevent people thinking that, 
Jesus not only gives us this passage, but the passage itself has a promise that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God gives you. I think that if God's putting the exact same promises for the fifth commandment on his least commandment, that means, yes, there are weightier matters of the law. Jesus said so, justice, mercy, and faith. But then he tells them, these ought you to have done without leaving the others undone. There's nothing wrong with tithing per se, but having fastidious observance of these externals and then ignoring justice, mercy, and faith means you're frauds, you're white, whited sepulchers. And the last person who needs to be a white sepulcher is a theonomist because he's supposedly a, a, an example of what walking in God's law as a Christian looks like, what faithfulness looks like, right? right. Uh, and, and, and there should be no legalistic component in it because that's, that's going to bring us down very fast uh, because uh, there's no justification in, uh, of any flesh, of any works of the flesh. So we have to be mindful of what part the law has to play in our, our lives, but it's a very important one. And that's why we should be delighting in it. Our, our heart attitude to God's law is going to tell us a lot about our heart attitude toward the lawgiver. And that's the Christ. Yeah, amen. Yes, definitely. So just wrapping up here, Martin, could you do our listeners a favor and give them some resources, places that they can go to connect with uh, with you and with Chalcedon and, and get some more resources on um, on the sorts of things you've been talking about today and other other important things that you think would be helpful. Sure. Uh, I think it's always, you know, I'll talk about Chalcedon first. The Chalcedon Foundation, we're 50 years old. We're celebrating our 50th year this year. It was founded by Dr. R.J. Rushduni, uh, who's no longer with us. So we've been running posthumously for about 14 years at this point. And we have a great website. It's got a tremendous research tool in it that we spend a lot of money building into it so that you can do all sorts of research and uh, save your research, um, all your quotes, your positions, the uh, texts. Uh, and all our books are available for free. Uh, we make it all available at no cost to you. Uh, you can get a free login. We might even dispense with the logins. But to use the research thing, we have to know whose research is whose. So the login helps us know who you are and gives you a special place where your files can be stored. Uh, so you can get to all the books. You can get to all the magazine articles going back in time for decades. Uh, soon we'll have the entire Journal of Christian Reconstruction, all the years of it, available as well as PDFs, searchable PDFs. The website is www.chalcedon.edu, chalcedon.edu. It's a hard C on the word chalcedon. Even though it looks like chalcedon, it's chalcedon. Uh, and all that to say, if you go there, you can get yourself a free login. Uh, allows you to go in, pull anything you want. If you can't afford books, they're all there online. If you can't afford a computer, go to a library or a, a bum a computer off a friend because it's worth it. Uh, these are all top-notch materials and uh, they're free for the taking. And uh, we certainly try to answer questions online there as well as on our Facebook page uh, uh, when they come in. Uh, and there are a few blogs there as well. But the main thing is to go there for the research. Read the magazines. Um, they've been going on since for 50 years. Uh, and the books, all of Oristini's books, all his commentaries are available there. Now, that certainly gives you one man's opinion. And he's, of course, as he himself has said, I'm a fallible man. But he was a, certainly a formidable intellect. And I don't think post-millennialism would be in as strong a shape as it is had it not been for his influence. And he became a post-mill through the works of uh, Roderick Campbell, J. Marcellus Kick and Warfield. So those are the places to go. And if you want to go into exegesis, then you have to kind of collect a bit of a library uh, to go into the, D the Greek and the Hebrew. You have to read like Hengstenberg 
on Revelation uh, and the Psalms. Christology of the Old Testament by Hengstenberg, a great resource. I highly recommend it. goes through all the prophecies of the Old Testament and shows the victory of Christ in each one. Now, these aren't perfect works, but they're a tremendous foundation, and you can it'll go wrong uh, using discernment with these, these guys who uh, fought the battle in previous uh, centuries. And go for it. Uh, certainly, American Vision, Gary DeMar's group, I highly recommend looking at their material as well that they produce. Uh, they've been in the fight for a long time, as, uh, and of course, Dr. Gary North has as well. They're different uh, streams of Reconstructionist thought. Uh, no reason to get stuck in one stream at the expense of the others. Uh, taste them all and uh, realize that there's an abundance of riches here, treasures from the Word of God that are uh, being made available to you as you learn how to apply them uh, in your own lives. The whole point is application. Rashtuni says, this is not abstract white tower junk. If you can't apply it, you haven't explained it right. Uh, that's why uh, he sees theology as the application of the Word of God. Uh, even in his systematic theology, it was a relatively technical work, but he says his goal is not to be technical and speak only to other academics. He's trying to reach intelligent laymen who are committed to the kingdom of Christ, and uh, that's the way to do it. That's why um, podcasts like this are important, because they reach incrementally to the grassroots and have a life of their own as they uh, spiral off into the blogosphere. Sweet. Yeah, awesome. And are there any particular works of yours that uh, that you would commend to us um, that uh, that you think would be helpful on these particular subjects as well? Well, you did mention the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, uh, number 15, which published in 1998. It's the Symposium on Eschatology, and I had the largest article in it, it was entitled Reconstructing Postmillennialism. Interesting term, why would we reconstruct it? Well, I basically was saying, look, the the amillennial caboose at the end of the postmillennial idea of how, how history ends is not uh, a, a valid conclusion on the scriptures. We're not taking the scriptures properly, and so much of what we discussed in the course of the last two hours, I lay out in detail from the original sources, from various exegetical sources, from the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, the scholarship since uh, Calvin forward, and explain how these texts need to be understood and how they interrelate to one another. So I think that's a good place to acquire some technical material. Uh, a lot of my stuff, unfortunately, is a little bit on the technical side. So if you're looking for introductions, I would probably direct you to other writers. Uh, a good post-millennial work, uh, though I disagree with a, a couple of things in it, would be He Shall Have Dominion by Dr. Kenneth Gentry. Uh, I, I'm about 95% on board with much of what he says about the victory of Christ. He and I part company only on the issue of preterism and that final apostasy at the end. Uh, but other than that, uh, it, it, the rest of it is a very sound and gives a good picture of what's going on. But if you read it with the eye of well, uh, the lens that I've been providing all this this time, and see where he says, well, but not every man, but not every human being will be saved, not total salvation of the whole world, not every nation, you'll start saying, hmm, if I add up all the times that he hemmed and hawed, I wonder how many times that is. And you'd, be, you'd say, hmm, maybe it's worth looking at what Martin had to say. Because, of course, this is an important question that deserves to be hacked out by us. The scholars need to work these details out. And Bonson called it hand-to-hand -hand exegetical combat. It's cordial, but it's important that it, be, that it happen, that we make these moves to try to settle these questions. Because we don't, a hundred years from now, want to be in a position saying, we still don't know if it's preterism or idealism. It'd be nice to have some closure on one of those schools of thought, or historicism, say. I am certain it's not futurism. That much I know is never going to happen. 
but it'd be nice to have some closure. And I think the scriptures promises, this is kind of a beautiful comment, I think it's in Isaiah 58, uh, where he says, one day Zion shall see eye to eye. Right now we are obligated to work with kind of in a darkness without theological and doctrinal unity. We're supposed to have an organic unity as the body of Christ. So God expects us to work past our theological divisions uh, to do his will on earth, right? But one day we will pass into doctrinal unity. Uh, Zion shall see eye to eye, will have doctrinal unity. Apparently this is many centuries off. It's my hope that podcasts like this are a step in the right direction to start spreading more ideas that have not been heard or that have been floated 200 years ago and no one's thought to re resurrect them, even though they were sound biblical expositions. Why not bring them back on the table and give them a place at the table so that we can dispute them, that we can analyze them, that we can be Bereans with them? Let's look at the parallel passages in many sections of Revelation, not just the one we discuss. It's loaded with them. And Revelation, more than almost any book of the New Testament, is rooted deeply in the Old Testament. If you read Hengstenberg's commentary on it, you see it ties over and over again, verse by verse, finding uh, probably almost a thousand cross-references to Old Testament passages that we would never have dreamed of. And since we don't know our Old Testament, we don't understand Revelation. That's our fault, right? So we have to kind of put all this back together. We're starting behind the starting point. We're trying to run a race, but we're 20 yards behind the starting point. We need to make up that lost time. Warfield said, you know, we've been deprived of the strong discipline of the past. Our scholarship as Christians has fallen on hard times. It used to be that church lasted five or six hours, and if the pastor tried to leave after four hours, the flock would protest and say, wait a minute, we need the word of God. How dare you leave until you've finished preaching? But now we, our butts get soft and hurt after 20 minutes. So you're not going to get theonomy out of Christianity light. It's going to be something in-depth. It's going to be digging in. It's going to be not being slothful in hearing. Remember in the book of Hebrews, we're told, for the amount of time that you guys have been taught, you should be teachers already. Instead, you're going back to the first rudiments, back to kindergarten. And for that, I'll just leave you with this. Look up Perpetual Kindergarten, the Perpetual Kindergarten. It's an article I wrote uh, on the Chalcedon website, and you'll see what I'm talking about and what's going to take to get away from the situation where we're continually being held back grade because we're failing the test and always being going back over the same six basics and never advancing out of kindergarten. The church needs to get out of its second infancy, and the post-mill theonomic camp certainly has taken a few steps in the right direction. But we need to do better uh, because it's not enough. But God, give us strength to do what's right and to gird our loins for the future that's facing us. And then we will see, if not us, then certainly our great-great-great-great-grandchildren will see all those sores being beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Wouldn't that be a wonderful time to be alive? Very exciting. And I do think the human lifespans will get larger and larger. The promise will one day be kept in Isaiah 11, that uh, they shall neither hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Excellent. Martin, it's been great having you on with us. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts and your wisdom. Yeah, Martin, thank you again for everything you said. That was uh, a lot to think about, a lot of good stuff, and uh, I think our listeners are going to enjoy um, hear what you hear, what you have to say. And um, I think we're going to be we're going to have to cut that clip about the six 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 in the Bible and send that to all our Dispy friends. And yeah, some good stuff. So <laughs> thanks again for everything you had to say. Sure, 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 no problem.
All right. Well, thanks for listening to episode six of that Postmo podcast. We thank again, thank you, Martin Celebrity, for your time here, um, vice president of Calcedon. And, um, he's got a lot of good stuff. We'll put some links in the description of some articles that uh, he's written, some, some of the websites that he recommended where you can get some free resources, Calcedon EDU, American Vision, Gary North. Um, yeah, um, hit us up on Facebook, um, Dat Post Mill. Uh, we're on, we're on Twitter, at Dat Post Mill. We're on Google Plus. We're all over the place. I think we're even on Instagram. We might have maybe two things out there. We're just taking over the world, taking dominion. So, on social media. So, um, send us a message. If you got a question, something else you want us to address on in a future episode, well, our goal is to equip the church with, um, good resources on that post mail on understanding, uh, what post millennial, uh, what post millennial eschatology is, theonomy. Um, we're going to be doing some episodes on, uh, presuppositional apologetics. We've got a good, a really exciting guest lined up for that. We've done covenant theology, Calvinism. We're going to be going over it all and we want you all to be educated on what the Bible teaches. So if you want to hear something, um, let us know. If you want Shaney to be on more episodes, let us know. Um, we'll have to figure something out. We'll talk to his professors and give him some time off. Uh, it'll happen. So thanks again for listening. Shaney, do you have any last comments? Hashtag that post mail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hashtag yeah. that post mail. Go get them, boys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Martin. Well, my pleasure to be with you boys. It's, it's really a pleasure to me because uh, we need the next generation to be uh, getting excited about the scriptures and taking them seriously and running with them. Protect us from the werewolves. And the meat Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse for how Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72, 11. This is an anthem to song is not an apologetic this is a song that lets you know christ is king because i read it if you want a debate name a time and place and we'll get it the progression of the kingdom of god is where my head is a post-millennial age is where we're headed christ is conquering the nations yeah i said it jesus the messiah brought the expected kingdom on time and as planned he is seated and reigning now His kingdom will grow in history through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. The world will experience the transformational blessings that peace with God brings. Jesus will return for the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.